Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 67. Last week, I covered the history of the town of Dothan and the Ishmaelites. I also explained the concept of a sheaf, pertinent since these agricultural items appeared in one of Joseph's dreams. This week, I'm picking up again in Genesis chapter 37 with the Midianites. So let's get started. The first mention of the Midianites is not of the people, but of their namesake, Midian, the fourth son of Abraham and his wife Keturah. So, similar to the Ishmaelites, the Midianites can trace their ancestry to Abraham. I'll circle back to the man in a bit, but first a little table setting. The reason I'm covering them now is because of their involvement with the cell of Joseph by his brothers to the Ishmaelites, and the actual nature of their participation is somewhat unclear. Essentially, there are a few theories, and the nature of the confusion stems from the actual wording in Genesis 37. So, before exploring the theories, I'll quote the passage, which should only take a minute, from the New Revised Standard Version, and beginning in verse 27, when his brothers are discussing selling him. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When some Midianite traders passed by, they drew Joseph up, lifting him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. End quote. So, as you can probably deduce, the theories are, first, that the Midianite traders were merely passing by before the Ishmaelites, or second, that Joseph was first sold to the Midianite traders, who then sold him to the Ishmaelites. Also, it's unclear who brought Joseph up from the well. Was it his brothers or the Midianites? It's somewhat like one of those drawings where you see a rabbit or a duck, until you see both. Adding to the confusion is the last sentence in the chapter, quoting, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. End quote. In my mind, there's only one explanation that reconciles the entire passage, and that is that the Ishmaelites were also Midianites. How can that be possible? Before answering that, let's first explore who the Midianites were in the Old Testament. Also, those of you who have been listening to the podcast for a while can probably guess what I'm going to say next. We may never know which option is true, but it doesn't really matter. Joseph's brothers sold him to someone, and he ended up in Egypt. Those are the overriding salient points of the narrative. And one quick note. Sometimes you will see the people of Median referred to as Medians, and other times as Medianites. I'll use the word Medianite if for no other reason than it rolls off the tongue easier, despite being less verbally efficient. So with that covered, I'll circle back to the man and the people. As I mentioned, it's in Genesis chapter 25 that we are introduced to Median, a son of Abraham. We are also told that he had four sons himself. The narrative of the man falls silent until chapter 36, where we learn that the man Median was defeated by Hadad, the son of Badad. There's another Hadad, 
I'll get to him in a minute. When Median was defeated, his people came to be ruled by Hadad. The location of the city mentioned, Avith, is presently unknown and was mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. Well, except for a mirroring passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 1. Back to the Midianites. The next mention of Median is in Exodus, picking up in chapter 2, which reads, He, meaning Moses, saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he was out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Median and sat down by a well. End quote. Okay, so Median was first a man, a son of Abraham, who came to rule over an indeterminate amount of territory and then was defeated. But, and there's a little assumption in here, the territory either came back to his descendants or at least retained his name as this is where the Moses fled and settled. And the retention of a name, as we've seen, is fairly common. Think Esau slash Edom and the Edomites, or Canaan and the Canaanites, or the best example, Israel and the Israelites, which exist to this day. In fact, we still do this. How many towns in the U.S. are named for British monarchs? Charleston, anyone? The story in Exodus continues. The priest of Midian, later revealed to be named Jethro, or sometimes called Ruel, had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come back so soon today? They said, An Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. End quote. And, with Moses' marriage to Zipporah and their son, the story of Median became permanently interwoven again with the narrative of the Old Testament. It was in the land of Median that Moses encountered the burning bush, as found in Exodus chapter 3. Then, much later in Exodus, Jethro finds Moses and his flock of Israelites in the wilderness. It is there that Jethro converts religions and begins worshiping the God of Moses. He also becomes a vital advisor to Moses before returning to his home country. Around the same time, in Numbers chapter 10, Moses asked Hobab, the son of Jethro, and therefore a Midianite, to accompany the Israelites in their travels towards the Promised Land all because of his local knowledge. 
Hobab, though, wanted to return to his home. Moses promised him that whatever good came to Israel would also be shared with him. Now, the narrative does not directly say if Hobab stuck around, but we do see in the book of Judges that Hobab's descendants ended up in the Levant, so he probably stayed. The Midianites make appearances throughout the book of Numbers. These mentions, though, primarily concern their interactions with other peoples of the region. That is, until Numbers chapter 25, when some of the Israelites began to associate too closely with outside people including Midianites, and even began to worship other gods and marry outside women. In one case, and this case included a Median woman named Cosby, who had some sort of relationship, maybe she married an Israelite man named Zimri. Their association led to a plague that killed 24,000 of the wandering Israelites. After this, God told Moses, Harass the Midianites and defeat them, for they have harassed you by the trickery with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and in the affair of Cosby, the daughter of a leader of Midian, their sister. She was killed on the day of the plague that resulted from Peor. End quote. And before starting that portion of the history, note that the Israelites went only after the Midianites, not the Moabites, as they were separately instructed not to harass the Moabites. Now, Peor was a mountain in the area that I'll cover at some later point, probably when I get to the book of Numbers. God's direction to Moses resulted in the narrative found in Numbers chapter 31. While the narrative is very descriptive and certainly worthy of a read, You'll need to do that on your own, as it would take up far too much of this episode, and I'm already running longer than expected. I'm going to provide a somewhat comprehensive summary, though. If it's details that you want, just open up your Bible to Numbers chapter 31. What you'll find is that the Israelite men, 1,000 from each tribe, so 12,000 in total, fought against Midian. These troops killed every man including their leader Balaam, the son of Beor. After the men were dead, the troops captured all of the Midianite women and children. As per normal, they also seized the spoils of war, including the Midianite flocks, herds, and other goods, anything that had any value. Just before departure, they destroyed the Midian towns and camps. They returned towards their territory with the women, children, and spoils. Now, just before they re-entered their camp, they met up with Moses and the priest Eliezer, as well as others in leadership positions. Moses was angry that they let the women live. Why? Well, the vanquished Balaam had asked them to. And, of course, Moses was probably remembering the plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. Moses then ordered them to kill all of the boys and every woman that had ever had relations with any man. Moses did allow girls that had not yet been with a man to live. And this was no small population. As we see in verse 35, they numbered 32,000. Pun? Yes. Intentional? Also yes. Moses instructed his troops who had killed or touched a dead person that they had to stay away for seven days as a quarantine precaution. 
once again not terribly surprising given the impact of the prior plague. There were also specific instructions on how to cleanse the captives. Garments had to be purified, as well as items made of wood, goat hair, and leather. Then, metal objects such as silver, iron, lead, tin, which may emit bronze, and gold had to be put into a fire to be purified. These metal items were then washed. After seven days, they were allowed back into the camp. And one sidebar, the list of metals, specifically iron, helps to date the passage as having taken place no earlier than the early Iron Age. Finally, this passage was quickly referred to in the book of Joshua. The next substantive mention of the Medians was in Judges, starting in chapter 6. It is here that the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them to the hand of Midian for seven years. After that period had passed, God called up Gideon to deliver the captive Israelites from the Midianites. In doing so, Gideon and his troops killed the Midianite princes, plural form of prince, Oreb and Zeb. He and his army then chased their kings, Zeba and Zalmunna, as far as Karkor, eventually capturing and executing them. Karkor was a town, or maybe just a place, in the open desert on the east bank of the Jordan River. It is thought to have been relatively close to Sukkuz and Pena'ul. Finally, this is the only passage in the Bible where Karkor is mentioned. And, as for them having two kings, let that simmer for a minute while I wrap up the biblical history. With their defeat at the hand of Gideon, the Midianites were never referred to as a people again in the Bible. Well, except to use their previous defeat as an example of the might of the Israelites and the power of God. But the name continued to be used as a geographic reference. For example, you might recall from a few episodes ago the story of Hadad, the Edomite, and not to be confused with the Hadad I mentioned earlier in this episode. Anyway, this Hadad was a young Edomite prince who fled the destruction of Edom and traveled to Egypt where he lived among the Pharaoh. 1 Kings chapter 11 mentions that he traveled from Midian to Paran and from Paran to Egypt. And the outside, meaning extra-biblical, historic record shows that there was an Edomite king named Hadad who was thought to have ruled around the 10th century BC. And this time period generally aligns with the biblical narrative of Solomon, the king of the united Israel. And as an Edomite king, Hadad would have descended from Esau, so he was at least a cousin of Midian. Which brings us to the foreshadowing comments of Isaiah in chapter 60 of the book bearing his name. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. End quote. The name Ephah was mentioned way back in Genesis chapter 25 as a son of Midian, but this reference, the one in Isaiah, is obviously geographic. A location bearing this name, meaning Ephah, is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible but some researchers believe it to have been somewhere on the Arabian Peninsula. Which brings me to the geographic location of Midian. 
First, I've got to note that the place was not only mentioned in the Old Testament, and also, unsurprisingly, the Torah, but it was also mentioned in the Islamic Quran. I'll get to the Quran in a minute or two. William Deaver, an American professor of archaeology and anthropology, proposed that the biblical median was in the northwest Arabian Peninsula, on the east shore of the Gulf of Aqaba, and also on the Red Sea. This area was generally uninhabited until around the 8th century BC. Think of it as a wilderness, but not the wilderness, or maybe. However, there are other researchers who take a different tact, proposing that Midian was not a geographical area, but was instead a league of tribes. Remember the two kings defeated by Gideon and Judges? How do you have two kings over a single people? Let that simmer for a moment. Think loose confederation. And this would also help to explain how the Ishmaelites could have been called the Midianites and clear much of the confusion from the story of Joseph being sold into slavery. Let's run with the confederation theory for a minute. Paul Haupt, an early 20th century German and American Semitic and Assyrian professor, proposed that the Midianites were, in his words, a cultic collective. A what? A cultic collective is essentially a group of various peoples brought together by a religion. In this case, again in his words, an association of different tribes in the vicinity of a sanctuary. He proposed that a place known as Aloth, which is on the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba, was the location of a shrine, with another shrine, or perhaps sanctuary, located at Kadesh. Of course, the way research works is that future research builds on past research. In this case, researchers that followed him doubted the two specific locations, but continued to support his theory that the group was loosely held together by a common religion. Australian biblical scholar William Dumbrell wrote that he believed that Hupp's theory was probably true, and that Midian, rather than representing a geographic area, was a general term for an amorphous league of late Bronze Age peoples, with a wide geographical range who, after a series of reverses, the most prominent of which are recorded in Judges chapter 6 and 7, largely disappeared from the historical scene. End quote. And, let me cover their religion for a bit. Like I mentioned, their religion is the thing that is thought to have united these people. Overall, there is no real certainty over who, or what, or even how these people worshipped. But, given their geographic proximity, the natural assumption is that the religious beliefs were similar to the Moabites. This would mean that they were polytheistic, worshipping a pantheon of deities. Currently, this group of gods, Little G, is thought to have included Baal Peor and their queen of heaven, Ashtaroth, which aligns with the text of Numbers chapter 25, where it reads, And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you shall kill any of your people who have yoked themselves to Baal Peor. There are a few researchers who propose that the Midianites may have worshipped Yahweh, the god of Moses. 
which also makes sense when you think back to Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who converted and then traveled back to his homeland. It is assumed, and probably a safe assumption, that upon his return to Midian, he continued to worship Yahweh, and maybe even spread the religion. But, then again, these are just assumptions. Now, there is also what was an Egyptian temple located at Timnah, which is presently found about as far south as you can go in the modern country of Israel. At some point in the Late Bronze Age to Early Iron Age, the Midianites gained control of the area, and therefore the temple. And when they did, they continued to use the religious facility. The area was also thought to have been used as a mine for copper ore. The Midianites converted the Egyptian temple into a sort of tent shrine. Some researchers have proposed that this facility resembled the Israelite tabernacle described in Exodus. Archaeological excavations have uncovered large quantities of red and yellow decayed cloth with beads woven into it, along with numerous copper rings and wire used to suspend some sort of curtain. Researchers and archaeologists think that the Midianites were making offerings to Hathor, the patron Egyptian goddess for miners, meaning people who dig holes in the ground, not children. If true, this suggests that the religion of the Midianites was rather fluid, similar to what has been seen in other polytheistic cultures of the region and era. To be clear, though, the theory that they worshipped an Egyptian deity is not supported by all researchers. Also, a large quantity of Midianite pottery was discovered at the shrine, and a small bronze snake with a gilded head was discovered there, too. Many other small metallic objects, including a small bronze figurine of a bearded male god, were uncovered. Most of these are thought to be Midianite, which brings me to other Midianite artifacts. Midianite pottery has been uncovered at several sites that range from the southern Levant to northwestern Saudi Arabia. This pottery, primarily based on its style, is thought to date to as early as the 13th century BC. The style includes geometric human and animal motifs painted in browns and dark reds on a pinkish tan background. Much of the pottery was uncovered at the mines of Timna and the surrounding area. Based mostly on the pottery style, a few researchers have proposed that the Midianite people were originally a seafaring tribe, maybe from the Aegean area, and migrated to the desert region late in the second millennium BC. This theory, of course, is at odds with the narrative in Genesis chapter 25. And, other than these artifacts, there really isn't much in the outside historic record of their existence. I'll wrap up this episode with the Midianites as found in the Quran, where they were frequently mentioned, but usually as the name Madian. Sometimes they are referred to as, and forgive my pronunciation, Ashhabu-e-Aika, which translates from Arabic to English as the Companions of the Wood. Why were they called this? Well, in Islam, they were thought to have worshipped a tree. In Islam, there was a prophet known as Shu'ayb, who was also a Midianite. He was sometimes thought of as being one and the same as Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. 
Shu'eb was mentioned in the Quran 11 different times. He proclaimed the faith and warned the people to their end of their fraudulent ways, such as the use of false weights in trade and robbing travelers. When the Midianites did not repent, God destroyed this community with a powerful earthquake. But Shu'eb, along with other believers, were spared by God, similar to the stories of Lot and Noah. So where does this leave us? Well, the Quran essentially names the Midianites as living in the Sinai Peninsula, being an unsavory lot and worshiping false gods, eventually leading to their destruction. Which is similar to what the Old Testament tells us, too. Though the Old Testament is not as specific as to their location. But, given that it's the land to where Moses escaped, Sinai is just as good of a place as any. And I'll end this episode on that note. Join me next week when I'll cover the place known as Sheol, and also the person known as Potiphar. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. Doing so helps others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.